Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Maya Breitbart. She's a professor of biological oceanography at the University of South Florida. We're going to talk about uh, seawater, what's in it, bacteria and viruses, and all kinds of amazing things probably no one thinks about. So, Maya, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I, I see that you have the Breitbart Lab. You have your own lab. It's great. Congratulations. So what's, um, what are some of the works that uh, is being done in the lab? What's being looked at? Yeah, so my lab uh, works on a lot of different things, but but our main focus is um, using sequencing techniques to explore the diversity of viruses and bacteria in a whole variety of environments. Um, as you mentioned, we're housed within the College of Marine Science, and so a lot of our work does focus on the marine environment. We're very interested in understanding what types of bacteria and viruses are out there. Generally, when people think about the oceans, they think about the, the large charismatic megafauna whether it's you know fish that you like to eat or, or dolphins that you want to see when you're out at the beach, uh, we're actually much more interested in the small things. And in every uh, milliliter of seawater, there's about a million bacteria and 10 million viruses. And there's still a lot we don't know about what they're doing out there. Um, but we do know that they play very important roles in the carbon and nutrient cycles in the ocean. And we're very interested in learning more. Yeah, I've heard that... Um... I guess is a tremendous cycling of uh, bacteria by the viruses. There's a, a tremendous culling and, and rebirth that's constantly going on in the ocean. And I guess the ocean's pretty well mixed compared to soil and, you know, perhaps other areas. So it's, yeah, it's different. I would, I would guess the dynamics are very, very different. It's a huge like semi-open system, or at least on a, on a small scale, it's an open system. Yeah, it all really depends on the scales that you think about. So absolutely what you said is true. Viruses are a major force in killing bacteria. So um, about half of the bacterial death is, is caused by viruses. We call these phage or phages. Um, they are viruses that infect bacteria. And they're responsible not only for um, for killing the bacteria, but also for a lot of horizontal gene transfer. So they can move genes around between bacteria. Um, they can carry genes that are useful metabolic genes for uh, bacteria. And so they play a lot of roles um, and many of which we're still just learning. So just recently we've been uh, collaborating with a trace metal chemist to look at the possible roles of viruses um, in trace metal cycling, including iron cycling in the ocean. So they have a lot of roles. Um, in terms of how well mixed it is, this is where the scale kind of gets tricky. So we know there's viruses in every environment that we look at, and we tend to think of the oceans as homogeneous, like you mentioned, but on these sort of very small scales that bacteria and viruses are operating in, they're actually a lot more heterogeneous than you would think. So you have a lot of uh, particles, and then maybe there's higher nutrients right around those particles. A lot of uh, microbes can swim, so they swim towards those particles. So you end up with hot spots and low spots in microbial activity as well even though you can't see them. But huh. uh, I guess regularly or in a lot of environments, bacteria preferentially live in biofilms, 
But what about in the ocean? Um, are they more free living or is it even more so that they're in biofilms because I guess the constant churning would make bacterial association different otherwise? Or what, what do you see? Yeah, they, they show both life cycles both lifestyles in the ocean. So there's lots of, of free living bacteria and a lot of those have adopted really streamlined genomes and lifestyles where they're just able to kind of kind of lay low for a long period of time, right? Um, and hang out until until conditions are, are good or or replicate really slowly. And then on the other hand, you have um, you often have changing environmental conditions. And so there are bacteria that are are adapted to take advantage of that uh, really rapidly as well. And so I think you can think of bacteria as they do really well in the environment because they can kind of hunker down and survive for a long period of time, but they can also respond really quickly. So for example, when you have an oil spill or something like that, um, or even if new chemicals like plastics get introduced into the ocean, um, there are bacteria out there, right, that can take advantage of those compounds and they'll respond quickly and react. So we know that there are different bacteria that are attached to particles uh, in the ocean and those might, you know, sink more rapidly through the water because particles will, will sink as opposed to most bacteria are too small to just kind of sink on their own. Um, so we have both lifestyles happening at the same time, but, but generally different types of microbes in the different habitats. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is, um... Bacteria being so small and viruses even smaller. I don't know. I don't. Uh, do they sink through a water column, or, or are they able to stay where they're at? And you know, if you start at the surface, I would guess there's certain bacteria that would live just in the first, I don't know, millimeter of water next to the surface, or whatever the churn depth is, because they need, they're aerobic, and then, well, more aerobic. And then as you go down into the water, I don't know. What, what you know, is it like a cake where? where bacteria live at certain depths and they're able to maintain that depth somehow? Or are they moving up and down too? So there's both there's both things going on. Um, so you definitely have bacteria that are adapted to different habitats in the water column. So for example, at the surface, you mentioned, um, you know, there's tons of sunlight at the surface and especially in the open ocean, a lot of the photosynthesis is performed by cyanobacteria. So these are just single celled plants. Um, that are bacterial, that are out there, that are fixing uh, carbon dioxide and producing oxygen. And those, you know, are really only functioning where there's, where there's sunlight. Of course, the sunlight's not just in the very surface of the water. You have different wavelengths of light as you get uh, a little bit deeper into the water. And there are certain bacteria you'll see if you compare um, the cyanobacteria that are at the very surface versus those that are found a little bit deeper. They're specially adapted to the wavelengths wavelengths of light that are present at each of those depths. Um, so there's definitely that sort of localized adaptation and the things that you find at the surface are different than what you would find deeper down in the ocean. Generally, uh, viruses and bacteria aren't going to be sinking through the water column on their own. So they'll they'll be stuck with that kind of body of water, the density of water, the, the patch of water that they're found in. Um, but then when you have things uh, such as particles sinking through the water column, if microbes are attached to those particles, those will sink through. And uh, for example, if you go looking in the deep sea at the types of microbes present, you find cyanobacteria and the phage that infect those cyanobacteria in deep waters. It doesn't mean that they're living in the deep waters. They were just sort of taken there, right? Carried there. Um, they can't photosynthesize down there, uh, but you, you do detect them. And so there are both of those processes going on where you have all of these very distinct micro niches. And a lot of times it's a, our knowledge is even limited by how we can sample because when you think about the water, 
and you think about sampling through the water, we send, um, we send these long bottles down into the water. And so maybe we target a thousand meters of depth and we send our sampling containers down there and we pop them open at a thousand meters, collect that water and bring it up. The, the size of those bottles compared to the size of water that you know a bacterium or a virus occupies, those are very different scales. And so if you could sample on very, very small scales, for example, if you think about um, the tongs of a fork, right, the tines of a fork, if you uh, were to suck up a small amount of water with each of those fork prongs, um, you would probably see different types of microbes living in each of those, even though they're so close together, right? Because that's a tremendous amount of scale, of space for a micro scale. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, would it make much difference if you did that? And, and also, too, if you're sampling and you're opening up a bottle there, you know, I don't know, a thousand feet down or a thousand meters down, the water would, I guess, rush in and and displace what's in there. And so you're not, you're getting like a mixing as the sample's taken as well. And I don't know how you'd ever, yeah, it is hard. How do you, how do you sample, let's say near the surface at a certain depth, because stuff's constantly moving and churning. And how do you sample below at a certain depth or a certain part without disturbing it much? It's weird. Yeah, so oceanographers um, use a CTD rosette. And so this is a basically a package that has a bunch of sensors on it. So we can measure conductivity, the salinity, temperature, and the depth that you're at. And then attached to this, we have lots of bottles. So the size, the size can range on these bottles. Um, but you they're uh, they're sort of spring-loaded bottles. They're called Niskin bottles. And when you send them out, both the top and the bottom are um, are spring-loaded, so they're so when you send it down, it's open. So just think about sending open cylinders down into the ocean, right? And you would uh, send it down to its deepest depth. depth. So let's say that's a, a thousand meters. You send it down, it's hollow. Um, so all the water that it's passing through is not being captured in there. And then when you reach the depth that you want, and you know that because of the depth sensor, you send a trigger. Um, this used to be done just through physical messengers. Now, now it's done uh, through electric signals. But you send a, a signal down there, and that triggers both ends of the bottle to close and kind of captures in place that water from where you're sampling. And then you can trigger each bottle at a different depth, or you could trigger all the bottles at the same depth, depending on what your sampling goals are. Well, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, do you interface with people that sample, let's say, I mean, has anyone sequenced uh dolphins or fish at different levels and you know what if you interface with those people to check what you're seeing microbe wise versus what they're seeing maybe it's uh you know i mean i think it's i guess it's coordinated somehow the fish that uh, the water's passing through their gills wherever they're at it would it would mimic what's going on in the water column right yeah absolutely so you have you have effects of both i think the first thing is it's really i guess it's it's natural to maybe think like okay well you have lots of fish out there in the oceans. And so they're really affecting the microbial community. And I don't want to say that fish aren't affecting the microbial community because they assuredly are. But you have to remember that the number of fish is really small compared to the amount of water out there. Um, and so we have natural microbial communities that are just floating around out in the water. Um, and that's kind of the dominant form. When we go looking for microbes that we know are associated with specific animals. It's not that you can't find them, but they're generally okay. found at much lower abundance. Uh, but we do know that, you know, every, every animal, every plant, every organism has microbes that are associated with it. So I think now everybody kind of knows about the human microbiome and the importance of understanding the function and the types of bacteria and viruses that live 
for example, in the human gut or on the human skin. And every animal that's out there has its own associated microbes. And so you will definitely see some, some effects of the larger animals that are present in the water. Um, in terms of the different fields working together, that's a great question. And science often, you know, kind of happens in silos because people have different expertise, right? So if I see a deep sea fish, I probably wouldn't be able to identify it just by looking at it. Um, and they're, if they're out there, you know, doing video surveys, they're not going to see the microbes that are there. And DNA has been one of the the really good kind of equalizers that has been able to bring a lot of these fields together. And our lab has been using um, analysis of environmental DNA, which is just kind of the DNA that's floating in the water, uh, to look at all of the diversity that's out there from the microbes um, all the way up through, you know, uh, algae that are there, zooplankton, things like copepods, fish, even mammals, because basically everything swimming through the water leaves behind its DNA as a signal. Um, and so by, by analyzing these different signals that are present in the DNA, we can get an idea of which species are coexisting together and how they're impacting each other. Do you think that anyone is so specialized that they're looking at the microbial communities on shipwrecks or things that are, things that are sunk in the water that are man-made and persistent? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, shipwrecks especially are really interesting because, um, you know, they tend to have a lot of things like iron associated with them, right? Um, that then rusts and, and changes and, and these chemical inputs are really important to the microbes. And so, yeah, people are looking at microbes associated with all the living and non-living things um, in the oceans, as well as in things like ballast water, right? That can be a source of, of moving different microbes around. So yeah, I think if you could name a different you know, plant or animal, there are probably a whole slew of people who are studying its microbial communities, both to understand what's happening in a natural environment, um, as well as, you know, how that might change uh, under either climate change scenarios or upon manipulation. What about like a deep sea black fence or, um, you know, super, super deep excursions? Has anyone gotten, you know, any microbes from like the Marianas Trench or again, like deep sea black smokers? Yeah, so there is, I can give you a few, a few names of, of some people to look at, but there, there's a whole field of people that are studying um, microbes associated with deep sea hydrothermal vents. Uh, those are really interesting chemosynthetic environments because, you know, kind of as I mentioned, the microbes being the primary producers in, in the upper part of the water column, there are all of these processes happening at depth, except for they're using different sources of energy, right? So they might be using hydrogen sulfide instead of, um, instead of sunlight and CO2. But there's entire food webs that are happening in all of those environments. People even study, um, you know, what happens to whales when they die and they fall, right? So um, in these whale falls where you have kind of all of a sudden a whale gets plopped into a deep sea environment, there's entire successional stages of not only microbes, but also animals that, you know, that kind of come into these environments and break them down. So it's really fascinating. So what's some of the, um, I don't know, what are some of the interesting implications or insights you've learned from your sample? So for us, um, we are still kind of learning a lot about what types of viruses are there. So viruses tend to be uh, trickier, I think, than, than other forms. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble if I say forms of life here, because of course it's pretty debatable whether viruses are alive or not, um, and people will fall on both sides of that. But in terms of looking at different well, biology... On, on this podcast, viruses are alive, I say, so go ahead. 
Yes. All right. That's wonderful. I also uh, tend to fall on that side, although I understand the controversy. Um, but viruses are harder to look at than a lot of other things because they have such different types of genomes. We have DNA viruses, we have RNA viruses, some have single-stranded genomes, some have double-stranded genomes, and um, there's no conserved genes that are found in all viruses. So this makes them really hard to to analyze. So we're kind of constantly finding new viruses right now, which is leading to a lot of questions in terms of, you know, what are they doing out there? What are their hosts? Um, what are their impacts on different types of hosts? Understanding which viruses we might be able to use as indicators of, um, for example, of sewage input. That's one of my lab's main focuses is, is looking at different viruses that are associated with fecal pollution into the marine environment. Um, and so there's certainly a lot to learn, but I think as we uncover all of these new viruses, we're learning a lot about um, how viruses evolved over time, how they how they affect their hosts, um, not only in disease states, but also, you know, what are the normal healthy viral communities associated with life in the oceans? Yeah, until recently I thought, um, I just imagined that one phage would associate with one bacteria, but I've heard that many different kinds of phage can, you know, prey on a given bacteria. In the ocean, I mean, is it like that? Do you observe that? Uh, do you see phages that you know are associated with a certain bacteria that are hanging out in seawater that has none of those bacteria? I mean, are you, has anyone correlated that yet? Oh, okay. We know these phage go after these kind of bacteria. It makes sense they're here or not. Yeah, so we um, we have a lot of knowledge in that area, but it's not it's not complete. So we definitely can link some types of phage to their hosts, and then we definitely do see the patterns. So you know, viruses tend to be present when their hosts are present, and the viruses can't they can't hang out indefinitely out there. They'll they'll decay over time, and so generally you will see these correlations. We know. We do tend to think of viruses as being fairly host specific. So if you take um, a phage and let's say you've isolated in the, in the lab against a certain species of bacteria, let's say a Vibrio or something like that, um, it often won't infect even very closely related bacterial strains. And we there's a lot of evidence for ongoing arms races between phage and their hosts, right? So just in any kind of predator prey situation, uh, in this case, they're going to be evolving resistance mechanisms and ways to overcome that resistance. That plays a big role, not only in things like the medical field, but but also in the oceans. That said, we do know that um, you know for bacteria, there's often many, many different phage that are capable of infecting them, and some phage can seem to have pretty broad host ranges. And so, they're not they're not generalists in the sense that they can infect all bacteria, but we don't, we're still gaining a good understanding of just how narrow or wide the host range of individual phage can be and what the trade-offs are. So for example, you might be able to infect a lot of different types of bacteria, but maybe you don't do it as efficiently, right? As something that's uh, really specialized. What are, um, what are some of the big questions that you're hoping to answer with your research? We are trying to understand um, in cases where we're just first identifying new viruses in species, uh, that every kind of virus identification leads to a lot of follow-up questions. So for example, about a year ago, uh, we found a virus in seagrass that was one of the first um, viruses that we know in any seagrass and the first one in kind of our major seagrass species of turtle grass, which, which dominates here um, in, in Florida waters. It's kind of the climax species. And we went looking just in healthy seagrasses to see if we could find viruses. And lo and behold, we did find a virus. Um, 
our virus that we found in seagrass was related to, even though it's pretty distantly related, but it but it has some similarity to viruses that infect terrestrial grasses. So for example, just that one discovery, which I think is really interesting, right? We don't know of any, or we didn't know of, of seagrass viruses previously. Now we have one. Now that you can see kicks off a whole bunch of more questions, right? So um, what is the relationship between these seagrass viruses and those in terrestrial plants? If we start finding more in seagrasses, are seagrass viruses gonna kind of form a unique group or are they interspersed um, with terrestrial plant viruses? We found these in healthy seagrasses. So are these viruses present kind of normally and widespread in healthy situations or do they cause disease under certain scenarios? Um, could they actually be beneficial, right? Could they be helping provide resistance to different conditions um, or in, in other ways be beneficial? How are they transmitted from seagrass to seagrass? Are there uh, vectors that are involved in that? So each, each identification like this really kind of fundamentally changes how we think about it and spurs off a lot more questions. Yeah, there's so many environments to look at. You know, if you look at one lake versus another, how different, if you look at different depths, if you look at, I mean, it just, it's crazy. It's, there's so many environments. It's amazing. Yeah, and I actually think that's I think that's one of the most exciting parts of it. Um, in some ways, we have a better understanding of viruses in the ocean than we do in almost any other environment, um, with the possible exception of, of humans for obvious reasons. But if you think about how vast the oceans are, I think that's kind of amazing, right? We've we've gotten pretty big. There have been a lot of big global surveys of of viruses in the ocean, but there are just so many habitats. And my lab, actually, we joke that our um, our lab motto is focus is for losers. And not that there's not, you know, considerable room and need for expertise in lots of different fields, but there are just, there's so many questions to be asked. So at any given time, we'll have somebody who's studying uh, human feces or human sewage and trying to understand what types of viruses are there and how we can uh, use this to indicate waste. We might also have somebody looking at disease um, in different animals. For example, we've worked on uh, sea turtle tumors and sea lion viruses, um, starfish viruses, so kind of lots of different species. We're also very interested in, in plants, both terrestrial and marine. Um, so we're kind of able to take these same techniques and look across different environments, working with lots of different people who are experts in those various environments. But we really, we're learning a whole lot about what's out there. Well, I mean, I would think you'd have to look at the commonalities. Otherwise, how do you form a you know, a theoretical basis for what to look for or how to understand what you're looking at. I mean, what, what are some what are some commonalities you found? Like, what are some of the great lessons you've learned in your studies? I guess the big picture commonalities are, first of all, that everything has viruses. So, you know, if if you kind of learn about a species that doesn't have virus, viruses known for it, I would bet my house that they're there, um, that either people just haven't looked. And oftentimes it's because, you know, the efforts really focus on things that are of economic importance or agricultural importance. And so, you know, maybe nobody found viruses in a certain species of spider, but then when you sample it in my backyard, lo and behold, there are viruses there, right? Um, so the first lesson is that there are viruses everywhere. The second is that, you know, not all viruses are bad. And, and that's a really big one, especially now that everybody is working from home, uh, because of, of coronavirus. But even, you know, when you just say the word virus to people, they immediately think of their last cold or flu or some horrible affliction. Um, 
And bacteria, I feel like, have broken out of that reputation a little bit, right? People kind of understand yogurt and good bacteria and, and have gotten those concepts, but viruses haven't really followed the same way. And so from that perspective, another big lesson is that there's lots of viruses associated with healthy organisms, um, and viruses can actually be beneficial um, to the health of organisms in lots of different ways, but one of the cases, you know, being that they can infect bacteria that can be pathogens. And so this idea of phage therapy or using viruses to specifically target bad or unwanted bacteria um, can be really useful. I think the third big lesson that we're learning is that we are very biased by our methods. And I think this is probably true in a lot of fields, um, but we, especially with sequencing, um, initially we, for example, didn't know there were single-stranded DNA viruses in the ocean. So we really thought the majority were double-stranded DNA. And then when our methods changed, all of a sudden we discovered that there were lots of single-stranded DNA viruses out there. We were just missing them. And so that's a group my lab's been really focused on now. You know, now that we know they're there, like, what are they doing? What are they infecting? You know, we know why we miss them all these years. Um, but a lot of our methods are going to bias the results as well as the databases. And I guess lesson four would be um, that there's a lot of unknown. So it's not it's not unusual for us to get our sequences back and analyze them and see upward of 90% of the sequences just having no similarity to anything in the database. And right now we can't wow. do a whole lot with those, right? We just, we call them unknowns. We put them in a, in a closet. And I really hope that, you know, we keep going back to that closet and pulling things out later and, and seeing what we find, but we get a lot of these unknowns and that's just a function of, you know, we haven't seen them before, right? We haven't learned about them. And so, um, as time goes on, we're going to build a lot better databases and we're starting to compare these unknowns against each other. So you might still not know what the given virus is, but you could say, well, we found this one in freshwater environments and in seawater, but we never find it in sewage, right? Or vice versa. Um, and so looking for those commonalities can really help us understand what's happening in the system. And then I think my last kind of overarching um, concept that we've learned and something that I really enjoy about it is to use, um, to not go in with preconceived notions, I guess, is, is a big part of it. So typically when we're looking at viruses, uh, people will do a test for a specific virus, right? So if you're sick and they want to know if you have the flu, they'll run a test for influenza. Um, that's all based on our prior knowledge. And so if you go into these samples, let's say with disease, you could test for maybe a hundred different viruses. You might get positives or you might get negatives, right? Um, but you're only going to find or not find what you're looking for. By using metagenomics, where we kind of go in and purify all the viruses and just sequence them directly, we find whatever's there as opposed to just what we're looking for. And this has actually led to one of the really uh, fun things that I've worked on for over 10 years now, which is we were looking for human viruses and we decided to look in human feces using these methods. And instead of finding lots of human viruses, what we came up with were lots of plant viruses and in particular pepper viruses. And so you might be thinking, well, that's okay. kind of weird, right? Like it's human poop. You're going to find human viruses or maybe phage that infect the bacteria there. But it turns out that a lot of the plant viruses we ingest through our food and they're just very stable. So they survive passage through the digestive tract. And by looking at just what's there, we found, oh, this pepper virus is really the most abundant virus that we find in, in human feces. And then 
that discovery, which we wouldn't have ever gone looking for, um, turns out to be really useful, for example, to track fecal pollution into marine environments or to predict risk associated with different activities. Okay, I see. What about the, um, the garbage patches in the ocean? Do you think anyone's looking at uh, the microbiome there, you know, the virome or stretches of ocean that you know, have low oxygen concentrations, you know, what happens to the, uh, the microbial communities in those conditions? Yeah, those are all great questions. So I don't know of anyone looking at the viruses associated with the garbage patches. Um, I do know that people are, are interested in looking at the microbial communities there, so bacteria in particular, right, to find things that might be capable of breaking down uh, plastics or, or different components of that trash. There are a lot of people that have been studying um, extreme environments in the oceans, such as these oxygen minimum zones that you mentioned, um, because there are different types of bacteria that you know can can grow anaerobically and really thrive there, as well as their associated viral communities. And so there's been a lot of work done looking at those environments. And what you see is, is very different, um, different bacterial and viral communities than you see kind of above or below those oxygen deficient patches in the ocean. Well, what's your sense when you look at all these communities of bacteria and viruses? I mean, you know, I'm sure again, you see commonalities and maybe behavior and, you know, when biofilms are formed and how environments change, et cetera. I mean, what's your overall, like, gestalt feeling about, you know, biology on this small scale, you know, what's going on or how, how would you describe it? It's really complicated. Um, and I think that also makes it really interesting and really exciting. So I think there's a lot more going on than we understand. So for example, a lot of the basic kind of ecological concepts would say that you would have a bacterium that could fulfill a niche, right? So if it can break down compound A, why would you have five different types of bacteria that could break down compound A, right? When you could just have one, why doesn't the one kind of best one just outcompete each other? And this is a case where we know things like phage predation, right? Um, or changing conditions can really affect that diversity. So I think the amount of diversity just in a single sample is really overwhelming. Um, that said, we do see a lot of the same themes over and over again. So even though you might have lots of different types of bacteria in, in one sample of seawater you, or viruses, we also see a lot of overlap, right, between that sample and other samples taken even across the world. And so there does seem to be kind of an overall pool of viral diversity that, and then that can kind of get everywhere, right? So this idea of everything is everywhere, but then the environment selects. And so you might have access to everything everywhere, but then the environmental conditions are gonna select for the types of microbes that can thrive in that environment. And then for example, the phage that can infect those types of bacteria are there. I think the other kind of takeaway message is that microbes are really tricky, right? They're really sneaky, um, especially viruses. Um, of course, I'm, I study viruses, so I think they're absolutely brilliant, but they have spent a lot of time co-evolving with their hosts, right? And coming up with different ways of successfully making more copies of themselves, which is, which is their, their main goal. And so they will carry genes that are useful for kind of propping up microbial metabolism while they replicate. They will have a adapted many different ways of overcoming host defenses, and there's a lot of them. Um, and they found ways to kind of survive in the environment and get from host to host. Well, very good. Maya, what's, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work, uh, you know, check out what the lab's doing, et cetera? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're at the University of South Florida. Um, our website is uh, marine.usf.edu slash genomics. I am also pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at virome underscore girl. Uh, so that's a good way to kind of keep track of, of the recent things that we're working on and thinking about. And you know, finally, I'm, I'm always really interested in developing new collaborations or talking to people who are just interested in learning more, especially um, you know, people who might be considering careers in microbiology or marine biology, be happy to talk to anybody. So feel free to find me anywhere and reach out. Okay. Well, great, Maya. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.